Hello and welcome to Stories from the Crispy Roar. This is episode 7 of season 4, titled, Really Want Some Quesadillas? And yeah, I do. Uh, both uh, in that title and in real life, I would love some quesadillas. So let's uh, let's see, there's a few things to talk about. There's going to be a little political in this uh, episode. Uh, not too much else really to talk about. I guess there was one thing... Um, thing outside of that uh but we'll get to it i'll I'll think about what to do with it as it goes on uh all right so first of all covid numbers seem to be going down we did have a high day here in um high day here a few days ago 430 i believe it was on wednesday or thursday uh we had a high day in alberta i think it was thursday and it was the highest day since the start of february so it's been a while it's it's number but mostly it's still going down there it seems like we're, we're getting another the next phase of reopening is probably going to go through in the next week or two which sounds good as long as the numbers keep tracking in the way that would be positive for population to go back to this and i i i'm to say that i'm starting to get tired of the government overseeing too much of this is an understatement and I don't like how the corporate media and the government... Now, I will say this that before I go all the way in on this. Most of, these, most of the issues involving Canada, specifically the COVID cases, is the corporate media can't really be the... Um, what's the phrase? It's not really the antagonist or the aggressor. They can't really be at checker... Um, uh, What's the phrasing? Um, they can't really be assertive when they don't think the government's asking the question, answering the question the right way. And we saw this in early uh, January with a CBC uh, article, really good one, talking about how the government, specifically Alberta, as well as most of the federal government and uh, a lot of the provinces, the COVID update meetings are done completely by phone for the media outlets. So they really don't have a time to properly respond and re-ask their question or push a second question or say, hey, you only answered a part of this. You didn't answer the second part. And it's it's sort of this weird thing where usually the CBC is seen as the, like, from the more center-right population of Canada, it's seen as the government broadcasting, communist broadcasting network is one nickname for it. And yet when I've, I've been seeing some really good writing out of the CBC, criticizing it. Now, I'm not a big fan of corporate media in general, and CBC is a corporate media, even, but it's backed by the Canadian government, which really makes it like the mouthpiece is not that good idea. And why I'm concerned about BBC, CBC, ABC, which is the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, all those that are propped up by the government are usually a mouthpiece. Now, if they are... Oh, adversarial is where I should be. If they are basically pushing back in a way of saying, hang on, even if they politically agreed with the operation or the message being sent, if they still push back, say, well, what are the people who think that this is too far or you know, presented a sort of not devil's advocate, but was sort of just a little more pushback? And during this timeline, uh, not timeline, but during this time with the COVID and the fact that most of these update meetings happen over the phone, um, the government can mute press mute and move on to the next person instead of like they're all in the press gallery and they're all criticizing them 
it really, really concerns about the info, gives you a concerning information, concerning thought about the information the government's putting out. And if the government is the only source of the information that's coming out and there is no way to find a second or third party that can verify or say, hey, no, that's wrong, like, besides from people leaking in the government, it really, really puts a damper on keeping this power in check. And I'm concerned about that because will the government really, will governments, North America, Europe, um, South America, like, if the government has the ability to, to literally shut down a vast swath of the economy and lock our population in, in a near pseudo-like prison thing, like, when you think about it, when the March 16th lockdowns happened in Canada, which is when it really started happening in Canada, for for over for almost two months, for almost two complete months, actually more than two complete months, practically, because in um, Alberta it was the end of May, so halfway through April would have been the first month, and then and then past May 16th is the second month. For a good portion of our society, we were in a in a sort of prison state. Now, when things start to get back to normal with the vaccines rolling out, it looks like credit to this, credit to the companies making Moderna and um, Pfizer, and now Canada finally has approved AstraZeneca, which that's a month and a half behind the United States. Like they they had it done in in December. Why why did it take us until? The near end of February, in fact, uh, it was Friday when they signed off on, um, on, it was Friday the 26th, the Canadian government signed off on AstraZeneca, um, COVID vaccine, it's just, what, where is that, where is that time delay, was it that they didn't send the data to us on time, and if that is, Fair play to the Canadian government. But if they sent us the data package at the same time they sent it to the United States, then questions need to be asked. And will that information come out Who, when the data packages of these vaccines were sent to the regulatory authorities that were going to sign off on it? Was, were the regulatory, regulatory authorities like rushing through and doing, not rushing, but I guess as quickly as they can, working through the issues that they were detecting? and working through the data that was given to them or was it like we have a meeting in two weeks and that's when we're going to discuss it and we're not going to we're not going to reschedule to come earlier because this is when we thought it was going to happen that information needs to be released so we can criticize the governments in their response and if it turns out the data package was not sent to them until this period of time because the data package that was required for them about the vaccine was not ready until that point in time then you, you really can't blame the companies if each nation... But you can say, why did the U.S. data package get there first? Was there some onerous issue that the Canadian government had? Was there this? Was there that? Like, there's a lot of information that can be gleaned from that. And I hope that that information comes out. I am skeptical it ever will. I just feel that the government in power and the future government in power, if uh, if, let's say, the election happened today and... Let's just throw this out there that the Conservative Party of Canada wins and will they release all that information? 
or will it be in the best interest of the institution of the federal government of Canada to not push that data out, to not release that? I want to say that hopefully, through retrospective research, we will find out the flaws that happened, the information that should have been taken, the why did the governments throw out all the COVID, uh, not the COVID handbooks, but quarantine handbooks that were created for pandemics in the early 2000s, post 9-11 and post SARS, and was updated um, with MERS in mind, was updated with Ebola spread in the late 2000s. Why was that information that was continuously re-updated throughout the 2010s thrown out as soon as COVID became a thing? Was it that so? Was it so different that they had no approach to it? If so, that's worth noting. But if they literally took the book and threw it in the fire, fire because they thought, oh, it's not, it's useless. We need to, we need to do something completely different because this, this won't make people feel safe. Okay, you need to make a point of that. You need to tell us you're doing that. The annoying thing is these books were thrown away. These plans were completely thrown away. And it's only been about half a year through the event did people start finding out hey, there was an existing plan. There was an existing system in place. Why did we not go to it? And the government hasn't told us why. Hasn't told us why those strategies that were thought up, that were planned to not bankrupt the economy as well as while protecting those who needed the most protection. It's questions that need to be answered and will they be answered? Honestly, probably not. Because no government needs to, likes to look bad. And no institution likes to look bad. Because these books are written by the institution. And sure, politicians can throw out these plans. But if the institution doesn't fight for them and, and allows it to be thrown out at a moment's notice, is the institution becoming a malignant tumor of what it should be? And I don't like that idea. I don't like that thought process. Because if that is what happened, then it means there must be a major house clearing in those institutions of government that thought that that was a good idea. But meanwhile, like as we see, the numbers are relatively going down, but the government control is expanding on the federal end of people traveling into Canada. So now, as of mid-February 1st, you were getting the plan of the three days in the hotel. Um, the three days is actually only the maximum wait time for a for your COVID test that you get when you arrive at the airport after flying through, after having a negative test to fly. When you get to Canada at the various locations, Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto, Montreal, um, I don't, I, uh, I guess Edmonton has a spot. Like there's very only a few airports that are international that you actually do this at. You do the test where they put the nasal swab in, and then within three days, within 72 hours, you're supposed to know your results. And if it comes about negative, you then can leave and go and quarantine somewhere else, which, okay. Um, if you get sick after that point, so my, my, I guess my issue is if you get, this was the thought that came to me, because we have somebody, our family knows somebody who just went through this, and they were out of the hospital in, in 24 hours. Because Calgary's labs are going relatively quickly, and in fact, Alberta's lab system is faster than the rest of Canada when it comes to diagnosing and going through COVID testing. That's a benefit to Alberta, and honestly, I wish the rest of the country was able to be as fast per capita, if not faster. 
I'd, I'd love for Ontario and Quebec to have mass uh, mass laboratories that can just go as fast, if not faster, than Alberta based on population size, percentile-based. So if Alberta's got 6 million people and Ontario and Quebec have somewhere around 17 million combined, it would be great if they could just go super fast or fast or something like that. I think it's, they probably have more than that. But it would be nice to see that they were going way faster than we were with their testing base because of their population is considerably larger than ours. But you have to understand then that Toronto Pearson and Montreal's uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau Airport are bigger airports for international travel entering Canada. So it makes sense that they would require, those labs would probably require the 72 hours, the three-day window to work within. Now, if everything goes negative and you leave, you're still supposed to have the rest of the 14 days, so 11 more days in quarantine. If you get sick after, let's say, if you get sick after that nasal swab, swab, it's probably the quarantine hotel that did it to you. Not 100%, I won't, I won't say 100%, but it most likely is. <clears throat> because that three-day, no, granted, the three-day window... Um, I find it weird that you're taking the test immediately and then shouldn't you get another test at the end of three days just to prove that you can be released because of the incubation period. But if you get out and let's say five days later you're sick, probably wasn't the hotel, uh, may have been, the, but probably was some local source. So it it sort of makes sense. Now we do have two stories, unfortunately, involving um, the quarantining, the quarantine act of of this event um one where a lady in toronto um uh, no we have one in i believe it's quebec a woman who was sexually assaulted in one of the hotels the story is not that great in the fact that it took security 15 to 20 minutes to come to deal with her and really they also delivered a bottle of water she had asked for four hours ago didn't really find the guy Hopefully there's more information that comes out of it, but that looks bad. And then we have one in Toronto where a private security firm that was contracted to follow up with the people who had left the hotel or had a different quarantining plan in place. This guy then forced himself and extorted inf- uh, extorted sexual uh, sexual favors, at least from what is said on the, in the CTV article in New- in Toronto from a woman who was in her secondary quarantine phase, which is the four days to 14 days phase when you get out of the hospital and was checking up on her and doing basically threatening like to take her to a quarantine site if she wasn't doing what he said said in a sexual manner this is a problem because that's how it got that's how it got out of control in australia and i'll credit to australia even though they did the things that i don't like these quarantining hospitals and this when they did it with the military at least the Australian armed forces have the dignity to treat the citizens with respect. If this is going on, and God forbid there's more than these two incidents, there probably is, unfortunately, or there probably will be. Let's pray that it, this is these are the only two and everything is cleaned up, but messes always fall through the cracks and unfortunate things do happen. I feel terrible for these women. And for the for both of them, it seems like forcefully taking them to a location, the, the one in Quebec with the, um, I believe it was Montreal, um, uh, Viva Fry, the um, lawyer on YouTube, um, 
has a good breakdown of both of these cases, cases at least from the news. Just it, it's disheartening that this would happen in Canada. It shouldn't happen anywhere, but to hear it happen in Canada really makes you think. Yeah, the government needs to be out of the way. Like that's, and there's other things I have questioned about. Like if you come back and you're fine, fine, you've had your two tests, you've proven negative both times. Like why are you still quarantining? And why is there a threat and a fine, stuff like that? And I just, yeah. Anyway, we also have the thing of if you test positive during your three days, you're taken to another quarantine site. Site, At least that's what it seems like the law is. And you're not supposed to post about it. You're not supposed to tell anybody where it is. If I was going to these places, I'd be recording absolutely everything. Everything, because who knows how much of that could eventually be found out under a lawsuit later that that's a violation of the Canadian um, Canadian Constitution, Charter, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Unfortunately, the Canadian government also has a has written that uh, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms with the notwithstanding clause, which was pretty much was written under Pierre Elliott Trudeau's uh, prime ministership, and was totally totally put in as a way to say, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. But here's a way the government can basically void all these rights for the government's sake. Any nation that puts a notwithstanding clause, like, all these things are, all these rights and freedoms are valid, notwithstanding X, which the government can assign at any point in time. What are you playing with, Trigger? Don't want to knock your knocking. He was, he was just playing around underneath. Hey, little buddy. Aw. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Aw. <laughs> oh. He's a good dog. He's done some naughty things this week. What are you what are you doing at the soundboard? You're giving me kisses too. Sorry about that. Whoops. You see, this is this is why I can never really stay angry at anything, because then trigger just comes and makes me all happy again. Aw, yes, I love you too. No, no, sit, sit, sit down, sit down. Sorry. <laughs> now he's got in his mind that he has to be part of the podcast. I mean, he's, he sort of is. Trigger, get, 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 don't, please sit down. Please, little buddy. Aw, yes, I love you. No, no. <laughs> he has a thing for wires. Thankfully, it's not a biting of wires. It's more of an interest of, hey, what's this? Uh, trigger, no. <laughs> well, let's, let's finish off that by saying there's questions that need to be answered about the COVID thing. Hopefully, there's inquiries into the, in, when this is all said and done, when we're back to normalcy, about where the right steps taken, where the wrong steps taken, why was, uh, why were old plans completely thrown out that may have worked better? Um, I like, I, and I, and we should do it under the pre under the pretense of hindsight is twenty twenty. There were information we didn't know when this started that we do know now. But let's compare the plans that we used to have that we threw out to see if it maybe it would have been better. There, and we'd have to do simulations and trials and gaming about that to find out. Maybe it would have been, maybe it wouldn't have been. But it would be interesting to uh, do. Now, uh, into a real political debate. And afterwards, we're going to go and talk about something funny. Um, gun control in Canada and the U.S. Uh, President Joe Biden and the Democrats are pushing gun control, trying to outlaw assault rifles and all this other stuff. Uh, annoying, annoying. Um, Representative Sheila Jackson put in this bill that's just absolutely insane. <laughs> Probably won't go anywhere because it just seems to be too vague of a swath hitting. 
but they're trying to make this this whole thing. And there's very few people who have actually done proper research on firearms control and firearms violence. And those who do have done the broad sweeping thing, broad sweeping research, aren't liked by either side. Because they answer, they bring up questions that nobody wants to really have answers for. So Andrew Heaton had one guy on uh, his podcast, uh, The Political Orphanage. Let's see if I can find out. uh, Why the hell would you do that to me? Um, I had it. Uh, Where is it? It's been a while. It's not too far back, but it was interesting. Uh, I'm trying to find it. I know I, I've listened to it. It was with him. Oh, maybe it wasn't that long ago. Maybe it's... Oh, yeah. Uh, February 10th on the political orphanage, gun deaths by, by the numbers. And it was written by uh, Guy Smith who is the author of Gun, Guns and Control, a nonpartisan guide to understanding mass public shootings, uh, gun accidents, crime, public carry, suicides, defense use, and more. And he is, it's a, um, it was a very fascinating podcast to listen to because this guy is coming at it from the complete scientific, like, we need to research this. There's a lot more here than gun bad. <laughs> and I recommend anyone who is pro-gun control listen to it and anyone who's anti-gun control to also listen to it. Because it's sensible. There were things that, that uh, Guy Smith brings up in his research that is actually very hard to do because there is not a lot of good numbers actually documented around the world or, or in some cases, not easily um, uh, measured between countries because of the different ways they attribute and uh, not attribute, but quantify crimes and uh, tally their stuff like assaults, assault with deadly weapons. Um, murder two, murder three, uh, so um, murder with a firearm, firearm, gang violence. Like countries have a different way of tabulating these informations, and international standards may not fit with certain nations. So he brings up that, and um, basically he comes to it to saying there is no like both sides don't have a real solution because they refuse to deal with the problem. And I, I, um, I'm looking at it as a pro-gun guy, and I'm like, there's information here that I need to hear about. So listening to him was basically saying, in the United States, specifically, five jurisdictions account for the vast majority of firearm murders in the U.S. And the most of, and that huge list is gang-related violence, especially if you remove gun suicides, which shouldn't be tabulated as gun violence. Violence. He he argues that that is a suicide. Side now, a murder suicide is not would be considered a murder, and then a suicide would be separate, but it would be considered a gun related murder. Here, but there are events where information's not being properly um, shared or can't be properly tabulated. Um, one of the ones he was talking about was he knew a detective in, uh, maybe not a detective, but a police officer in Los Angeles County, who knew that that the people who were dead in like one scene was. Uh, a gang war between one side and the other. But because they had no leads to go on, they couldn't tabulate it as a gang warfare. It was just, you know, ma- a massacre, sort of public shooting thing. And the information is, is besides from the very few amount of spree killers who do happen, 
and it seems to be that a good portion of it is the what the what the what the Secret Service has said since Columbine High School shooting has been a copycat and infamy. Somebody killed twenty people. I want to be famous. It's the way to get their name in the history book, and it's a very perverse and dark thought process that brings you to that point. And it's disgusting to even go down that pathway. But when you wonder, but he Guy Smith's uh, research indicates that these spree shooters, their minds are wired differently than ninety nine percent of the population. They are people who would be sociopathic and psychopathic for sure they have mental disorders that predispose them towards violence to humans and it's much easier for them to turn off the switch that i'm shooting human versus that's a thing i don't mind he also very very oftenly says that um that violence in video games has done nothing thing because we can actually track um, the more graphic and violent video games have come up, why spree shootings and school shootings have not accelerated with it, where they seem to have these weird blips. And he was talking about how um, every town, the pro-gun control uh, group funded, backed by Michael Bloomberg, really fudges the numbers by going from three people being shot to two and basically like, and then throws out any information, be like, oh, that was a gang shooting near school property versus saying, like, oh, that's just, that was a shooting in, on school property, but it doesn't take the nuances of it. And there's a lot of nuances in it. So that's the U.S. side. Let's go talk about the Canadian stuff. So Trudeau and his public safety minister, I, I, I should rephrase that, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, I need to give him that respect. Yeah, even though I don't like him, I should at least afford him the respect of the office he has been elected. His party has been elected to being the minority, but largest minority, getting backed by another minority party. And he was chosen, to, and he is the head of the party that's chosen to be the prime minister. I should still respect respect the office, even though I don't respect the man. man. He's now going after with a new bill to basically like give cities the bylaw right to ban firearms and then back it up with federal punishment if you violate them, which that's a whole can of worms when it gets to the court system because the court system can be like, this is a civil offense which can only be a fine but the feds have now made it a crime here, which means if cities who don't ban firearms how, how do we evenly do that? That's not fair to the population. Criminal justice is supposed to be blind and fair. If you live in Calgary and they're like, we're not going to do a handgun ban, but Edmonton decides to do a handgun ban, that's not fair for criminal prosecution across the country. That makes it very, very, very hard to do. And I suspect that will be, if that bill, if this bill were to pass, I believe it's C21 in Canada? Yeah, it sounds about right. Um... That would go to that specifically would go to the Supreme Court. Now there's also a ban of uh, they're trying to take away certain firearms, uh, which is basically they're trying to take the um, uh, the order of committee, the order in uh, what's the frickin' phrase like the order that was done by the Privy Council during uh, following the um, Nova Scotia uh, 
shooting, which was absolutely terrible. They're trying to now take that from a dubious legal standpoint, order and counsel, to then turn it into actual laws, what they're following up with, and giving it more beef, wanting to extend to ban handguns, but only through cities banning them. But you can still own them, but your city may not let you possess them in the city. Um, okay. Don't like that. Very much don't like that. Um, makes it sound like he's going getting ready for Prime Minister Trudeau and the Liberal Party, so getting ready for an election run. Because gun control is always an election-related issue. It seems to have no recourse in it unless there's a gun-related event that happens in, in Canada or there's an election right around the corner. Which is why I'm angry about this. Now, there's other, another part where they basically have sort of lined up where continuous owner purchasing and distribution of airsoft guns for toys, as well as potentially paintball guns, will be banned out all as well. Because we can't have realistic-looking firearms in the hands of our citizens that aren't real firearms, because we banned real firearms from them. Now, me as an airsoft collector... I don't play the airsoft sport, but I like collecting them because I can't own the real versions of these guns. Uh, some I can, most I can't. This is my f fun around it now. My, my approach has always been the same way of, if you commit a crime using an airsoft gun, you get charged as if it was the real gun. The RCMP and the police and various law enforcement agencies are not going to know the difference when they come at you, which means if they shoot you dead um, during a... After action report and and um, incidents, um, what's it called? Um, uh, you know the guys who go in um, investigation after a deadly incident investigation happens. The even if it came out that oh he had an airsoft gun, the family should not be able to say to the police force, well because he had an airsoft gun, you shouldn't use deadly deadly force on him and the city's city or these police forces liable for my son's death and sue for that. I look at that and I say, if that was true, I'd be, just be like, this person used their airsoft gun in the commission of a crime, which means they hope that the people they were dealing with did not know the difference between the airsoft gun they were using and a real firearm, which means they intended it to use a real firearm if they could have had it, if they had a real M16 fully automatic weapon to rob a bag with versus the versus a Tokyo Mari M15 which looks exactly the same they were emulating the real gun in their crime and that means the police and the victims who had no idea what was di if it was different or not will have the same response no matter what the only real difference is the airsoft gun can't kill somebody by shooting them with it but it can kill somebody by that person getting shot by somebody else. And that sort of leads into the play stupid games win stupid prizes category. Also, I don't know how many crimes in Canada have been committed with airsoft guns, but as far as I can tell, it's extremely low. And it seems like other BB guns will also follow suit, and it's like, great, great. So, uh, that's just that's a bad thing. I don't even think this bill's going to get passed, because it just seems too BS to me. There's a lot of airsoft companies that distribute, that sell airsoft. They do things as right as they can. I also know that there's a lot of airsoft sport ranges where people can go on the weekend and blow off some steam by having a fun game. There is a culture that takes it a little too far sometimes, 
times I've seen evidence of it online. I'm not part of that. I have only seen the evidence after the fact, and there's been some news on it. Like there was a team in Calgary that um, took pictures of all their players as if it, they were military, and then posted a like on their page those who were taken out in the mission as if they were killed, and it like didn't seem that good. And a lot of military people, including some who were played in, on that field in that game, were very disgusted by that, and that's. That's a bit too far on the morbid humor side for me. I mean, yeah, I, it's funny in the moment, but when you look back at it, I bet most of the guys after they did that joke, like within the next day, before the media blew up on them, probably afterwards was like, okay, looking back on this, this wasn't a good idea. But that's my only. That's the only thing I've seen that's really a negative look at Airsoft in Canada. I know that there's been... I know there it's 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 a fun game to play. There there it's not cheap to do. I mean, you're talking about 200 up to $200 Canadian up to like in the thousands of dollar range for certain certain airsoft guns. If you're a collector or like a you know, a guy who likes all these special things or like wants special features, optics, all this other stuff to just make it look more and more build a kit out it's you can throw a lot of money down just like you can with a real firearm so i hope that the the c bill c21 does not go anywhere and the the sad thing is these two laws these two laws that are in one in the united states one in canada it will do they will do relatively nothing they if they have an effect it'll be a very marginal effect on criminal access to firearms. The genie's already out of the bottle, or the lamp. The, the Pandora's box is already open. Gun technology exists. In fact, since 3D printing has been, started to become a thing and has gotten relatively cheap, like a good resin 3D printer is now within average person's affordability. They may not have the skill to run the CAD files, but you're just talking about downloading and importing that to the printer and time and... Like, gun control is soon going to be a thing of the past. 3D printing has ended real gun control. The information's out there. You can print an M16. It may not be as real effective as a stone, as an aluminum steel receiver, like aluminum and steel built weapon, been um, designed by Colt, by Damaco, by FN by numerous other companies that make AR-15 variants, but you can you can pr find the files and download them and print the weapon. Now, your next thing is ammunition. Well, if you're going to print an illegal firearm, you've already broken a law. You're probably not going to be as concerned about going into a store and grabbing 5.56223 ammo or... Yet running across the border and doing and like bringing a case back in a way that nobody would find out about. I mean, you have to look at the numbers of how many people travel across the Canadian border at a time. How many people just walk away with like what gets through the border that the the, the police miss because they can't catch everybody. 
remember, the police have to, to for Canada to be secured, the police have to be the board, well, police and border agents have to be correct a hundred percent of the time. Hundred percent of the time, they have to get somebody. Let's say one guy walks through with a case of a thousand five five six rounds in his truck that he drove across from um, Detroit. He's coming from Detroit and he drives into the U- into uh, London, Ontario. They don't see anything. It's like eh, whatever. It's in a secret. It's in a. It's just in a box that they don't check. It's in a suitcase. He's got everything fine. They they ask the right questions. He's cool as a cucumber. Nothing's going wrong. They don't detect any any lies and, and it just happens. Or yeah, dumped. Or uh, what's another one? Um, you know, specifically around Ontario and stuff like that. Freaking throw them into the lakes, or drive a bow across the lake and throw it to each other. If um, surveillance teams aren't looking that closely, realistically, they could also be coming in through shipping containers, transport trucks, hidden in merchandise that the driver doesn't even know was there. Gets to a location, to a distribution warehouse where he trades off, and that's where the that's where the contraband is trans is separated out and given to the distributed to the guys who want it. Like. There is a network and an infrastructural system built by these criminals that they can get what they want, want most of the time. And most of these crimes are being committed with pistols, by and large, by a huge majority. So banning these, banning long guns, semi-automatic rifles, is going to have a very negligible impact. And I know I'm getting on this high horse all the time about firearms. The more you prohibit something, the more it becomes desirable. And the more it becomes desirable with the more prohibition you put on it, the more people are willing to do to get it. And there was a post in the uh, National... There was a article in the National Post about a guy who doesn't own firearms, does not want to own firearms. He said, knowing this bill is coming out, if this bill became law, I would not be buying a gun, according him, legally right now. I don't want my name in a database, and... I'm standing there and I'm like, there's a, yeah. And that's a terrifying thought that a regular day citizen is having that. A person who's generally doesn't care about firearms, like they exist. I have no strong opinions one way or the other if you should own them or not. But if I want to buy one, I don't want anyone knowing I have it. Especially not a fear of it being a publicly available database. And uh, that's more at the American side. I don't believe the Canadians have that publicly available database. If they do, that's just levels upon levels of idiocracy. Like, why would you publish where people with guns live? Because if you did, you know where people who don't have guns live as well. (laughs) Which means you know which houses to knock over if you're a criminal. So let's end that. Um, Let's go in. Tomorrow is February 28th, the end of the month. We are almost in March. We are just, we are 49 weeks from two weeks to flatten the curve anniversary. We are 49 weeks through. Just over two more weeks. We're almost there. In fact, what day is, uh, ah, stupid thing. Let's go to calendar. Yep. This Tuesday will be 52 weeks. 50 of 52 weeks through the two weeks to flatten the curve. 
Isn't that great? <laughs> uh, but yeah, let's uh, let's go on to other things. So I just watched Tenet. Um, my buddy loaned it to me a few weeks ago. Never really got around to it. Watched it. I really enjoyed it. I have to say, I wish I had seen it in theaters with my friends, though, being that it was released during the COVID pandemic, the odds of me being able to see it in theaters with friends is insignificant. In fact, most of my friends I would go and see it with were people who are a little on the don't-want-to-risk-it side, a little too much in the anxiety and paranoia phrase phase of it. I guess I shouldn't say paranoia. Paranoia is more other thing, but they're a little... They have higher anxiety to COVID than I do. And I'm looking at the numbers as the same as them. So not being able to enjoy it in theaters with them is kind of annoying. <laughs> that's, that's how it is. But still a good movie. I'll have to watch it again. Um, it, it, it's a movie where I absolutely refuse to read TV tropes. I refuse to read Wikipedia. I refuse to read anything on it at all just like it's a movie there's some time manipulation related into it but that's not it and i just it's very well done the actors are all amazing the lead guy let me just look this up i want to get his name because he just did amazing um john david washington who also starred in uh, Black Klansman, which I have not watched, but Adam Driver's in that, so I believe it, it's a good movie. <laughs> Probably a funny movie to watch. He is just amazing. He was a football player. Tried to tried to be a football player. Wow. Cool. <laughs> uh, he, he's great in that movie. I, I, I don't know if there are... I, I, yeah, I'm trying to sort of my thoughts, but there, there's not a lot of actors who could have played that role as well as he did. Robert Pattinson also, I just from the from seeing him in the Twilight Saga, which I've never watched, but just seeing the things and he's maybe been in one other movie I've actually watched, so I've never really kept up on that. But he's really good too. Um. It's just the cast is really good. Um, the story is interesting. I can see where a lot of people would not like the story, the way how the time thing works. How we don't really get explained how the time machines work, but they do exist. Not time machines, but like how you invert and something and be non inverted. Um, the f- focal point um, where the story, where the story, like. You know, not the story, but basically the movie has an intersection point from the first half and the second half, which are very well actually put together <laughs> that nobody would have noticed. Uh, watching a second time, you see, way, you pick up way more information on it. It's, uh, it's a very, 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 very good, good movie. Very good movie. I'm going to go watch it again, in fact, right now. After I'm done this, and then I'm going to put this online. <sighs> what else? Been playing some more games. Uh, and a buddy over, and we played uh, Super Mario 3D World and had a lot of fun with that. Definitely, playing two players means that you have a higher chance of beating a level, but there can be frustrating where you don't... Uh, 
you miss something. But then you go back and you're like, okay, this is where it is. We know how to work together and not risk each other doing that. And there's some challenges where you need to have the, the cherries. Really makes it way easier when there's two players doing now. I'll have to get under playing Bowser's Fury. Of course, he's got a Wii U and I've got a Switch, and he wishes we could cross-platform, and we can't. I would consider buying it for the Switch, but I don't... I mean, for the Wii U, but I don't know if uh, the online play works as well on there. Mostly because it, uh, Wii U's online play was free, and as far as I know, a lot of those features are now shut down. Still a very good game. Good good for Nintendo. Um, Skyward Sword is being re-released on the Nintendo Switch. I don't know if I mentioned that earlier. I don't think so. I don't think I've had a podcast since I learned that information. Can't wait to play that. I never finished it on the Wii. In fact, I only barely started on the Wii, so this will be a good excuse to play through it properly. And it uh, looks cool. Hopefully we got more. There's rumors that Majora's Mask and Ocarina of Time could be in the mix, um, as well as Twilight Princess and Wind Waker, because they've already been remastered for the Wii U, and the Wii U wasn't that far a step to the Switch. Versus from the original coding. Although they were both remastered for the 3DS. Which means that it shouldn't be too hard for them to also push to um, to the Switch. Hopefully that. Um, Mithra and Pyra from Xenoblade Chronicles 2 are coming to Smash Bros. And apparently that's a slight controversy for some reason. To... Uh, to to, ga- to female games journalists who have a more progressive political ideology and I would say SJW, but that's too, that's too much of a pejorative now. It's just, you do something for them, and then you do something that fits with them, and then they complain, you do something that doesn't work, fit with them, and they complain. It's, they seem to make uh, issues that aren't be there, and because I'm not part of the games journalism culture at all. I'm just the guy who likes playing video games. There are groups of people in the gaming media industry that I agree with and I don't agree with, and they bat, bounce back and forth. Sort of in a weird place where... Uh, I was listening to a Jim Sterling episode, like his last week's episode, where... I, I really like Jim Sterling, but... You can tell, um, actually you can't, I shouldn't say this. This has only been my notice because I haven't watched some of his stuff in a little while. I still support him on Patreon because I still like him, but I've, I had to, I reduced some of my donation to him because I wanted to donate to other people more. More, um, but he, he conflated everyone who voted for Trump as being close to Nazism. And when I hear that, it's just, you, you don't want to do it's a terrible thing. It's just like how libertarians and conservatives call everyone they disagree with communists. And I've done that too. I'm I'm not saying I'm guiltless of this. I am definitely guilty of this. It ends the conversation before it even begins. And the the other thing is when you're in an echo chamber and you're hearing like you do that and 10% of your audience disagrees with you, but 90% drown them out. Most and 10% of that, and the lead of that 90% are vitriolic. By the way, this is not actual stats. I'm just throwing these out there, and I, in fact, I highly doubt that's the actual numbers. You you kind of want to see, like, when you go through that episode's um, comments and how the people commenting are all, oh, yes, yes, Jim, and they're all top comments. 
and you're like, this doesn't appear to me, but I, I am also, I don't want to really piss anybody off, off about it. Like, yeah, that's wrong. Definitely, like, Jim shouldn't be doing that. And all these people who are saying, oh, that's absolutely amazing, I disagree with them, but I don't want to start name-calling them as well. I can't say they're... The thing is, I can't say they're wrong because we've gotten to the point now where political ideology is so personally locked in belief of the ideologue that a textbook example of right or wrong for them, like, is they not, are they a Nazi based on these locked-in criteria? They'd say, no, but I think they're a Nazi, therefore they are. It's, it's, it's moved past the logic to vitriolic, I believe believe they are and they must be and it's just unfortunate it's unfortunate because these cults of personalities that are starting to appear can harm people uh, both in the negative and the positive way Uh, can harm people who are both the target and can harm people who are the producer of the vitriol like um, if you're always getting a cheer you're doing the right thing, and then you go out and ex- and meet somebody who you, like, meet this guy or meet this girl or meet this person who you don't know that they're opposing in political ideology of you, and then you go and find, find like, oh, my goodness, I met them, and they, this is absolutely not what they were. You just, you come back, and you're like, um, did you not understand what happened? <laughs> oh, what's the other thing that's been going on? Oh yeah, um watching Donut Operator and his uh, coverage of uh, Jeremy DeWitt. <laughs> oh, it's uh and r- finding out about this uh channel Real World Police, which is just freaking hilarious to watch. Uh Let me go through my subscriptions cuz I've just been blown through some of stuff. Oh, uh, uh, CGP Grey ha- had a Q&A 10 years later. I should have watched that. Uh, what else is there? Um, oh, what was another thing I saw recently that just... Uh, oh, yeah. Walked into a comment thread on on Facebook on Elon Musk's Hyperloop. It's interesting to see how like nearly half of the comments are from people who have watched the videos and have just started doing the calculation or know people who understand engineering or start seeing flaws in it and are just taking over. They're like, yeah, this isn't going to work as well as they think it will. And or it's going to cost fortune. Like uh, a good example is Elon Musk's Hyperloop One, which is supposed to connect uh, California to Las Vegas, LA to Las Vegas. When we see that they've cut the, like the LA the uh, California high speed rail is cut down to about half the track it was going to have, is costing at least ten times as much as it was supposed to, which when you realize it's half the size it was supposed to be, that's now twenty times as much because I think what it was supposed to be like like 
seven to ten billion dollars originally now it's over a hundred billion dollars and they're only doing half of the track and they don't know when they're going to be able to complete the other half and production delays property purchases they're trying to use eminent domain and they're finding out that the courts are not really working with them because they think this is a flawed infrastructure project that hasn't been proven the california highways high-speed rail i believe is the most expensive infrastructure project ever committed by a democratic government. And when you hear that and you realize that government is usually the last place you go to save money and is terrible at keeping things under budget. And the fact that the um, one of the main guys who pushed for it after learning the reality of it is now opposing it completely. He's a used he's a railway magnet who, um, not magnet, but he's a rail. He's like a, he was a public transportation um, advocate, and then he started seeing how the pork is made, how this project is being developed, and he's the exact other way. He's he's reason interviewed him in the early uh, site in the about the second year of the high speed rail project, and he was just kill the damn thing. Now that I've seen how this is going to be done, it's terrible. It's just money's being thrown out all over the place. And you just see people who are who are um, pro, like, Elon Musk can do no wrong. And I think Elon Musk is a smart guy. But he seems to be either too far in the future of thought that can be successfully done. Or... Um, or he comes up with ideas and he knows that somebody else will spend the money to do them. And I, I, I don't know which one he is. He's obviously a very smart businessman. He seems to know how to make a lot of money. He knows, um, and this is probably a detriment to him in the long run, that he's popular in the Generation X and Z communities, um, the Generation X, Millennial and Z communities, so Generation X, Generation Y, Generation Z seem to really like him. Which, fine. But he seems to have like a meme. He, he seems to be a meme more than a real person in that. Like his, he, he says something, uh, I've said this before, he says something on Facebook or, or on Twitter and th- thousands if not millions of dollars suddenly rush towards this product and something he was communicating on. And people don't really spend time to think about it. Like, his pro I'm using signal now that WhatsApp's losing their um this anonymity because it's now being brought under Facebook's control like more more aggressively. It's like yeah, okay, but you all these people who jumped over to Signal, it's good that you're now concerned about your public um about your data being shared and how it's being manipulated or not manipulated or seen or informing of uh, companies. But uh, you did this because Elon Musk said something. You didn't do it because your own research was done. And yes, and I just, it seems to be that the longer this goes on, the image that he's made seems to be painted on glass and the cracks are starting to show. The people who are critical of him, not to be, not critical as, as in like they hate him, but critical as in there's something more here 
and you're not answering that. It seems to be like they're slowly chipping away at this image and image at a mirror image of him and seeing who he really is. And I don't think he's he's a malicious. I absolutely refuse to believe there's malicious intent on this. I think he's very idealistic, and then reality falls on him, and he never really has walked back from reality. From to, he never really walks his claims back to reality post the event. He just lets it go, and it's a myth, but it dies, and somebody else takes over it. He's he pushes it out there, and then he walks away from it and lets somebody else sort of run it. So, of course, like the Hyperloop one thing, because he's not running that anymore. If it fails, it'll be Virgin Hyperloop one that would be fail. And they'll blame Richard Branson for not having the team that could actually understand what Elon Musk doing. And it's going to be very hard for Richard to say, well, actually, we have all the data from Elon and his team sold to us and we got all the details and we had to just do a little bit more. And it turns out it, like, if Richard Branson came out and said, oh, it doesn't work. It just the math turns out at the end it didn't work. It's like, but if you had known that at the start, would have you have purchased Hyperloop One for that amount of money that you did? And people would be like, well, if you knew, why did you buy it? So yeah, I think that's about it. That's pretty good for this episode. Uh, I could really use a quesadilla. I really want some quesadillas, actually, is the title. Really use the quesadillas would actually be a good title as well. Uh, gosh. Sometimes I lose my mind. But yeah, Season 4, Episode 7, February 27th. Um, thanks for uh, tuning in and listening. I will see you all soon. Bye.